right, are you with me? I'm here. Hell yeah. All right, I'm going to hit the song, okay? All right. All right. Because we're the Houston Oilers. Houston Oilers. Houston Oilers number one. Yes, we're the Houston Oilers. Houston Oilers. Houston Oilers number one. Hello, everyone. You're listening to Balred Radio. My name is Matt Weston. Tonight, I'm joined by the biggest, fattest, strongest on the wall, BFD. Hey, man, how's it going? Hey, we got it going. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, yes, we do. All right. So, before we get going, I want to play a game of charades real fast, okay? All right. Uh, I guess not charades, but uh, in- impersonations. All right. Guess who I am, okay? Today? <laughs> <laughs> good, good. I was expecting that. It's home. That oh my is, god, uh, I'm gonna call Alexa. That is, please that don't answer. Me, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that is me as Tony Romo right there. Oh Tony god, Romo, Tony Romo watching oh. a replay of a complete pass with not even a question of all about it being incomplete. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I like that. Yeah. Do you have Do you have one? To, do you have a good Tony Romo you can do? I, I do not do imitations well at all. So no. Okay. No. That's yeah. the only good one I got, or I've ever had. I could do a good. Uh, when I was like 13, I could do a good George Bush face and make it um, look like I was pleasuring myself, and that made a lot of those people laugh. <laughs> And those are the only two wow. good impersonations I have. Where I get my eyes, you know, real, real squinty, you know, look real serious. But yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> those are the only two. I'm I just got. envisioning. So, I'm envisioning Will Ferrell right now, just so just so you're aware. Yeah, I'm not uh, not handsome though, I guess. So, <laughs> are you are you excited to watch the Super Bowl, the New England Patriots and the Philadelphia Eagles? Oh, sigh. I mean, it's so funny because there's, like, the people who are like, well, the Patriots are clearly the best team in the league, and they deserve to be in the Super Bowl. I don't think they're clearly the best team in the league, number one. And number two, my life could definitely do without watching the Patriots in another Super Bowl. I mean, I'm just saying that, you know, it's just boring. We get it. Tom Brady's the best quarterback (laughs) in NFL history. We get it. That does not mean I want to see him play in another dadgum Super Bowl. So I just I, – I really wanted to see Blake Bortles bordling his way down the field for the Super Bowl. I did. So the answer is not really. Eh, whatever, Matt. Yeah, I, I was so upset on Sunday night. Just like – because the Vikings game was terrible. The Patriots won. I was like, I just don't want to watch him again. And then quickly I was able to talk myself into it because I'm a sheep once I start thinking about – you know, the Eagles defensive line, what Nick Foles did, throwing the ball down the field, uh, Jay Ajayi, the Eagles offensive line. And I also watched a bunch of videos, just Philly fans losing their minds. And I have a friend who lives up there right now, too. And it'd be cool if, like, he was out there if Philly won a Super Bowl. So I was able to kind of talk myself into it. But, I mean, it's all just a bunch of, you know, brainwash, really. Like, it's it sucks. And 
uh, the matches that we have available to us, I, I think this is the one I was least looking forward to. But uh, I'll watch, and, you know, I'll, I won't be happy about it, but I'm not going to complain, you know. And, you know, and the big difference for me is, in that, as we're talking about that, is, is if it would have been Carson Wentz, it would have been a totally different story, right? Yeah, oh, cool, Carson sure. Wentz against Tom Brady. But Nick Foles against Tom Brady is just like drinking a six-pack of Natty Light and passing out. Yeah, and but it's like if Wentz played like Foles played on Sunday night, you'd be like, oh my gosh, this is the, he's the greatest quarterback of all time. But because it's Nick Foles who did it, you know, nobody knows if that's real or not, or you know if he can uh, replicate that performance ever again. And that performance can show out 2013 from him as well. So, I mean, I don't know. I'll, I'll, whatever. Here we are. You know, there's nothing else we can do, or there's nothing we can do to begin with. But here we are. This no, is, no. This is what we choose to do. Yeah. It doesn't matter what Big Matt and I say. We don't jinx the team. You know, we, just because we say something stupid on a Tuesday night doesn't mean something. the team does something stupid on Sunday. We have no control. We're just a couple of dorks living in our mother's basements and doing a podcast. That's all. Yeah, and they don't need us to do dumb things. That's what, you know, the football team is good at doing. And, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I was going to say something else I, that was funny, but I can't remember now. But anyway, the big Texans news this weekend was that on Saturday, Saturday, huge news coming out. Uh, Mike Vrabel is hired to be the head coach of the Tennessee Titans. Now, if you forgot, with the Houston Texans defense in 2016, ranked ninth in defensive DVOA, negative 5.8%, and they fell all the way to 23rd with a DVOA of 5.6%. So aside from injuries, BFD, what was the biggest reason for the drop in defensive performance for your Houston Texans last year? So before we even start talking about this, everybody's going to start, you know, the, the big defense is going to be, look at the injuries. Well, the defense sucked before the injuries hit. I mean, it really did. Yeah. It was really poor. So let, if you start on the front four or front three-ish, uh, you know, J.J. Watt wasn't the same guy yet. We still considered line, we, we still line him up outside all the time. He's lost his long speed. He cannot turn the corner like he used to instead of taking advantage of his first step quickness. We kept putting him in like these weird wide, wide nine-esque configurations right on the field, right? Configurations, formations, whatever. Dropping clowning into coverage often is beyond stupid, and we did it all season. Uh, Merciless didn't look the same, which is, I mean, you know, granted, he, he didn't last very long. He's kind of a second-half kind of guy. Jonathan Joseph lost his uh, straw to the Fountain of Youth. Kareem Jackson continued to get worse. Kevin Johnson continued to get hurt. There is a lot of factors going on here, but I just want to point to the biggest thing, and I'm going to hand it off to you, Big Matt, to talk about this more and more detail, is what made us successful against the Patriots in the 2016 playoffs. It was those A-gap blitzes with linebackers and running stunts and twists inside that confused teams, and we just did not run that this year, Matt. And they had a really good secondary as well, too, that year that was able to take advantage of, you know, quick passes by breaking the ball. And, uh, you know, it was a combined effort in in not having A.J. Boye, you know, this secondary fell apart really quickly. And, uh, you know, that whole thing was just so stupid. And I I saw that thing that um, Aaron Wilson wrote where he called Boye up and he said the Texans wanted to pay him like their fourth cornerback and thought he was the fourth best cornerback on the team. And, you know, on Twitter, Mike Meltzer said he didn't believe that, and I'm not. I don't want to get. I don't know what to believe or not to believe. But this is a, an AJ Boye slander-free podcast. 
a slander-free website, you know, slander-free <laughs> tweets. So we're not going to hear any of that at all. But, I mean, that was also another part of this too. And the thing is, like, Mike Vrabel did it bad. Like, if you remove the injuries, if you remove the loss of him, Mike Vrabel didn't do a good job being with, with this defense. He didn't make the most of the talent we had. You know, you mentioned it earlier. He wasn't, you know, blitzing up the middle with the linebackers like they did last year that worked. He was having J.J. Watt on the edge. In addition to that, like, just the coverages were really poor. Over and over again, they got burnt deep playing cover four against the Patriots in Seattle and also against Kansas City. And yet they kept running it. They didn't have the, I guess, the ability to run that defense because of the personnel. And also they haven't really ran that coverage scheme before at all. And they weren't ready for it to run like in games to pass off receivers and that sort of thing. And they lost, you know, two and a half games because of it. Uh, and then you also go back to later in the year and they're playing the Jags and teams with like faster, quick passing attacks. And rather than play zone, like a, a team that'd be good against that to do, they're playing man-to-man press coverage against faster receivers than the older cornerbacks that Houston has. And they're also slower guys too as well. And you see that and you just see kind of, you know, regression from Kevin Johnson, you know, Kareem Jackson, uh, you know, the loss of play from Jonathan Joseph. And, you know, McKinney and Cunningham were better and, you know, Clowney had a great year. And there's nothing questionable that Mike Vrabel does not, that Mike Vrabel is bad at. That there's no question Mike Vrabel is good at developing, you know, defensive linemen, defensive players, and, you know, teaching them how to play the game. But Vrabel doesn't know how to game plan an entire defense. He doesn't know how to call plays in the game. He doesn't know how to make in-game adjustments and all sorts of things. And does that mean he's going to be a bad head coach? I mean, no. But it doesn't necessarily mean that he should have been given the job he was given because, you know, the consideration usually is the best defensive coordinators, offensive coordinators get these positions. And, you know, Vrabel wasn't that at all. Yeah, and we can talk, you know, guys got older, guys got hurt. Moving DJ, DJ Reader to play uh, three-tech after J.J. Watt got hurt was probably the best move for, for DJ Reader, even though I really would like to see him uh, you know, back in the middle again. But, look, there is nothing that we could look at to look at Mike Brable's body of work and say, hey, I'm impressed by this. And I just want to go back to, to what Matt was talking about with the cover fours. There was so much of a – I couldn't tell if it was whether – if it was distrust or too much trust in the, in the guys that we had in the secondary, but our secondary guys are so slow between Jonathan Joseph and Kareem Jackson and uh, 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 Gilchrist. Those are some slow dudes, relatively speaking. And so it, I, I just, I, I could never get really get a grasp of what Rabel's secondary scheme was really trying to do and really trying to prove. And that, I think for me, you take away a side of the A-gap blitzing and the lack of the, the pressure in the middle, the, the, the lack of using McKinney properly, I, that's the part that blew me away, Matt. Yeah, and McKinney played a lot more coverage this year than did last year, too. And he didn't really have the – he really wasn't an effective blitzer. He didn't blitz often, you know, this year also. And so, I mean, like – well, like Vrabel was bad at his job last year, and you know we can go through each and every game and pinpoint all these decisions, and we brought you know some perfect examples of it. Uh, but the whole thing is just you know really weird. So why did the Titans hire Mike Vrabel? I, I think Luke Beggs and his post, the it post, really nails it. And uh, you know, in my little comment about it, is that there seem to be two qualifications. Really, I, I mentioned one in my post, but there really seem to be two qualifications for a head coaching candidate this year. And that is either that you played for or once coached for the New England Patriots and that you're white. 
Those seem to be the only two qualifications for coaching guys, which is pathetic. Yes, Wilt's got a job. I'm so happy for him. Dude, totally deserved it. But what has Mike Grable done? I mean, look, seriously, if you've got Marcus Mariota as your quarterback and you're interviewing Matt LaFleur, the, the quarterback's coach for the Rams, who has the exact same amount of coordinator experience as Vrabel does at the NFL level one year, how do you pick Vrabel over LaFleur? I don't get that at all. I, I really feel like the team dodged to pull it. Now, that said, for a while there, it looked like the Chip Kelly guy, and I'm, I'm forgetting his name, and I wrote my, my comments um, before I saw that, you know, he was talking to the Chip Kelly guy. He's pulled his name out of that hat, so he's not going to go there. I just don't get how, if you're, if you're the ownership, the DESF, how you've got a, a defensive guy over a quarterback's coach. And I want to come back to this point after you make a comment on why do you think he got the job, Matt? Uh, I mean, I, I think the big, I think it's kind of like why Brian Gang got hired in Houston is that, you know, he's good pals with Bill O'Brien. They know how to work with each other well. And John Robinson, you know, knows, has already has a working relationship with Mike Vrabel. You know, they know each other well. You know, Robinson likes him. And they won. And I guess, like, they still want this physical, you know, sort of football team. And so I, I, I think that what they're, kind of thing more or less is that we have a guy like Rabel, we have leadership, we have the it factor, we have the guy who can lead us to be that team that's physical and mean and nasty and all those ruthless things and that they can get the staff around him you know, coach, uh, you marry Oda up and develop a passing attack and then a defensive coordinator who isn't old and 73 years old and is constantly blitzing and isn't able to you know scheme that well against the modern day NFLs, then they're all the, they already have the foundation there and Vrabel can pretty much just be like a Mike Tomlin figure or a Jim Harbaugh figure for this team. And that's the only thing I can really think of it all because there's nothing – and I guess, like, and it's not like they have a young front seven at all either. I mean, obviously you would prefer as a, as a tight end person or the times themselves so that you get somebody in there who can make Marcus Mariota better. But instead they went with this sort of leadership figure guy. And I think Mike Vrabel can be that, but, you know, it seems like a weird decision to make for a head coach at, at this position where this team is, you know. Yeah, and here's me coming back to, to what I was saying. Let's look at the teams who, who did well this year, and let's look at their head coaches. I mean, Sean Payton is an um, offensive guy. Doug, you know, Sean Payton for the Saints. Doug Peterson, offensive guy. Right? Um, you got um, – sorry, I kind of I threw myself off track this, a little bit. Bill Belichick, while he was a defensive guy coming up the ranks, he's really turned into an offensive head coach, right? He's, he's just both. Were you, he's both. Yeah, he's both. I really like what he's done offensively, and I would like to talk about that a little bit too. But uh, And he's worked obviously working with his coordinators, but, man, that, that was a Belichickian scheme if I ever saw one on Sunday. Um, but it, you have a lot of the uh, – Kyle Shanahan, uh, McVay, a lot of the teams that did really well this year and showed drastic improvements are basically former quarterback coaches or offensive coordinators. I mean, that's where you see the strength. Mike Zimmer is a D.C. guy, but he had uh, – Pat Shermer has his O.C. So you see the teams that are doing really well in the league. Andy Reid with the Chiefs, just another one. These are the teams that are doing well. You don't see teams that have defensive coordinators or guys with defensive backgrounds with head coaches that are really doing well in the NFL today. I think there's really a reason for that because it's an offensive league, Matt. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's just if the, if the guy's a good coach or not, too, because Tomlin was a defensive backs coach. Uh, you know, the Steelers won, 13, won 12 games this year. You know, Pete Carroll was a defensive coach. I think if I didn't think it's a, like if you're a defensive guy, you have to bring – you have to, like, some sort of, like, like end goal and philosophy and coaching philosophy and, you know, scheme you can kind of plug and play guys into. And that's what Zimmer has. That's what, you know, Carroll has. Uh, that's what, you know, Gus Bradley had going Jacksonville, and that didn't work, of course, but then – when you have that much talent, it's a little bit easier to, to kind of mold it for you know, their D.C. down there. So, I mean, I think it really just kind of depends on if the guys are a good head coach or not. And uh, But I do think, like I was saying just now, that if it's going to be a defensive guy, he's have like an overall scheme and plan you know, in place and what, what type of players he wants. He has to be a lot more like, you know, things to be a lot more well thought out and, and put together than maybe an offensive guy does. Yeah, Jack Marone, offensive guy. I don't know what he is. He just kind of. He came egg. up. He, uh, offensive line coach and coordinator. Okay. Yeah, every time I, they show shots of him on the sideline, I was like, I don't even know what this what this thing is. You know, is he a man? I think he's just like a mannequin from a Tommy Bahama, just like turned to life. You know. <laughs> yep. I like I like That's his little tears of poker glasses too. So, yeah, I mean, I don't – so do you think the Titans would be worse off with Mike Vrabel than Mike Malarkey? We, I mean, we really, really have no way of knowing. The good news is if you're a, if you're a BESF fan is Mike Malarkey's probably good, going to ditch – or, uh, you know, the, whoever's going to take over the offense is going to ditch the exotic smash mouth. Now, the big question is what are they going to do offensively? So we don't have an offensive coach yet. We don't really know. We don't have a kind of a, a theory that we're going to be working with. If you go back to what they lack right now, and that's really having any sort of plan defensively, and and oh my God, how am I blanking on his name? Former Pittsburgh Steeler defensive coordinator. How am I blanking his name? Dick LeBeau. Dick LeBeau, the legend, the god. He has not been very good the past couple of years, but he hasn't had any talent to work with either. I mean, that to me, Matt and I, Big Matt and I disagree on this. I think it's really just a, a piss poor personnel defensively for the for them. So it, maybe if they get somebody, you know, Vrabel can have some input on that, get some help on that. They've been drafting offensively and heavily so many years except for Dory Jackson last year. Maybe they get more help and that turns out better. So I, I don't, you know, we don't know what Vrabel's going to bring to a team. The only thing that we know is that he just really has his rep in league circles that he is, he has it, and that's all that matters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I think with, with Vrabel – like if he, it really depends on what his staff is because I think he can. I don't. I mean, I really don't know. I, I don't know very much about him, but everything everybody says about him that he could be that you know, sort of figure guy, figurehead, that guy, that rock in the center of the team. You know, all the players seem to have really liked him. That you know, in Houston during his time there, and so if he can be like Mike Tomlin, where he's not calling plays at all, and if he can figure out how to you know work challenges and the two minute drill and those sorts of things. Uh, you know, I, I think I can see it working out, but the biggest thing for him is going to be his coordinators. And you know, I, I will say that like I, I, you know, Smith worked, you know, last year, and the reason why it didn't work this year was one, like they never really developed a, a confident passing attack with it. But two, their red zone touchdown rate went from seventy percent to forty percent this year, and that's why their their points dropped off so much. And then you have Mario throwing the interceptions that they have. So like, you saw Jacksonville's game plan with all the quick screens, our power run formation, like that's what, you know, that's, it's a similar sort of offense. So I can still see Tennessee sticking with this power run scheme and have it work out well. 
They just need to have somebody who can take it to the next level by developing a you know competent passing attack by going no huddle and hurry up and running more play action and running more quick passes as well too instead of just be you know run run pass or run run and then throw out a shotgun you know so I think like the boss are there I think Milwaukee did something interesting I just don't think he was he was smart enough or you know, good enough to fully bring it to fruition you know. Well, and you've talked about it often. The other thing he wasn't smart enough to do is play to was take advantage of matchup weaknesses. So if you had the number one defense in the league, he was going to still do exotic mess mouth on you. I mean, yeah. You can't do that. You have to make, make adjustments. And, the, and they pretty much have the same thing with Mike Vrabel. So, I mean, if, if he's not calling plays for the defense and if he's not the, the game plan guy or whatever, I think it can end up working out for him. But if it works out, it's going to be kind of like – you're winning games to Blake Bortles at quarterback where everything around him is so great. He just has to do this little bit and be a, a manager, not necessarily, you know, a genius at all. Yeah. Now with him gone, Romeo Cornell is stepping down the booth. The man is back. And so with him back as defensive coordinator, the pending cap space, the possible returns of JJ White when he merciless is healthy. Uh, give me a projection for this defense next season. I mean, it's a trick question. I, I love, obviously, I love Romeo Cornell. Um, I, I just, I adore the guy. I just have no other way to put it. Um, the big thing going into 2018 for the Texans is what the heck are we going to do about the secondary? I mean, Joseph needs to be replaced. Johnson, questionable. Jackson certainly needs to be replaced or moved to safety. I, you cannot, you really cannot have three replacement level cornerbacks on your team. And I think that's what we're looking at next year. And I, I don't know any other way to look at that. And that puts him in a very tough position just right off the bat. So I, I do think the defense will improve. I think we'll get to the quarterback a little bit better. I, I, I could really see this being a team that improves, um, uh, gets more sacks, does better against the run, and gives up a lot of passing yards. Matt? I I think it can be – It really, I mean – I asked you this question, and it was kind of an impossible question to answer. It really depends on what they do with the secondary. And then the secondary isn't as important if J.J. Watt and Lenny Mercer are fully healthy. If they have, like, a top-five pass rush. But who knows if that can happen, you know? But I still think the idea about this defense seems the same idea it was going into last year, where they're going to have the best front seven in football. They're going to be able to stop the run, extinguish the run completely, and then have, like, a really incredible pass rush where the defensive back's performance is as important. Where you know if Kevin Johnson wants to cover for two seconds, Kareem Jackson wants to cover for you know, a second and a half, uh, and then you have you know, hopefully a confident strong safety can play that Robert position, come down, make plays on the ball. But they have to add pieces to the secondary, and they have to hope guys are healthy. They have to hope Clowney stays healthy for another year. So I mean, I think the talent's still here for this to be a top ten defense, but there is just like is that looking you know directly into just the ocean and not really having any idea at all. There's no closure there. It just kind of goes on forever where it's kind of a limitless and open question, you know? Yeah, because free agency is going to have a big say about this. I, I don't see Brian Cushing coming back. You know, what do we do about the safety positions? Gilchrist isn't the answer. I, I still am unsure if Andre Howell is the answer. Uh, even if we get – when we get Watt, Clowney, and Merciless back, is that really enough to get to the quarterback? even with McKinney coming from the inside, is that really enough? I mean, Clowney kind of put up counting stats this year, but, you know, we don't know what Merciless is going to give us, and I, we certainly don't know what Watt's going to give us. 
So it's, I think there's a lot of question marks. That's why when you say top 10, I'm thinking top 15. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think those three guys are fully healthy for you know 16 games. I think it can be a top 10 defense for sure. Uh, just because that, you know, that means, you know, that's like 120 pressures right there. And then at least, you know, like 35, at least like 30 sacks. And uh, that's, that's a, like a top 10, you know, pass rush. And that will be a, a top five probably run defense. And then from there, you just hope Kareem Jackson, Kevin Johnson are good enough as well as mystery cornerback X and then your mystery strong safety Z. And you just kind of hope that they can do just enough. Yep. So, I don't know. Is there any other Texans news that you that you want to get to or anything that you've seen on the internet that's really made you upset? <laughs> am I that predictable? I'm glad to have Romeo back. I just really am. I just see yeah. I, I see the scheme being at least a li- lot more enjoyable. It's time to kick J.J. Watt inside. It's time to quit, you know, thinking that he's the same guy he was three years ago. He's not. Uh, it'll be nice to see some more inventive blitzes. It'll be nice to actually get to the quarterback more often. I'm I'm excited about having Rack back. Yeah, yeah, and his defense is more interesting. What like if you go back and watch like Texans all 22 from this year, which I really didn't do that much of because it was just you know, really hard to watch on the defense side of the ball. It's just three, four. The nose tackle plays two gaps. Everybody else plays one gap, and then the secondary is really bad, and you just have Clowney's one one who can rush the pass for it all. And it's sat for, you know, 10 games in a row. And there's nothing, you know, enjoyable or really interesting at all about it. Uh, I'll probably write about Zach Cunningham here in, you know, three weeks or so. And I'll have to watch some of that a little bit more closely. But it's me mainly just watching him because the scheme really doesn't mean a whole lot. But, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited for Cornell to be back. It should be uh, more fun. And, and uh, I, yeah, I wish you had something that you saw on the internet that really made you mad. I would like to hear some wild <laughs> up, you know, BFD feathers. Yeah, no, not today. Yeah, sorry. For me, it's just like I just see things that make me mad, and I just go, "There's no, there's nothing to be mad about at all." I'm not gonna respond to this. I'll, if not, I'm gonna spend the rest of my day arguing about something, and that's not what I'm here to do at all. So I'm, I'm pretty good about that. I'm good at biting my my fingers and off instead of typing something out, you know. Right. Yep. Yeah. So this Sunday we had two football games. The first went two o'clock. Saw the New England Patriots beat the Jacksonville Jaguars 24-20. And this first half, the Jaguars were up 14-10. to And Blake Bowles was pretty much perfect. They kept the Jags defense – they kept the Patriots defense off balance in a variety of screens, quick passes, play-action passes on first and second down. They ran power runs on first and second down as well. They really stay out third down uh, really well too. And they scored 14 points. And in the second half, they only managed to kick two long field goals uh, they never really kind of clicked at all. So what was the difference for you between the first and second half for Jacksonville's offense? I just think that after the first half, uh, I, I think that what we saw in the first half was Nate Hackett really out planning the, the Patriots defense. I think that he really kept them off balance. What happened in the second half is that they just decided they were just going to let Leonard Fournette run dives the rest of the game, it seemed like. Uh, mm-hmm. They really, the way that you put it, did they? They feel like they left off the gas. Yeah, they totally took their foot off the gas. They went back. Look where they had success in the second half, which was 
Blake Bortles, of all people, pushing the ball down the sidelines and throwing their, their slants that they, like, that they like to do. He was doing a lot more offensively when he was stretching the ball down the field. In fact, there was that one late uh, slant that if he would have thrown the ball more shallow instead of deep, I think that could have been, that could have been ball game. Uh, if Bortles is on, but at the same time, you can't let Bortles make those throws. You have to limit what he's actually going to do for yours. He's, he's going to make mistakes. But this is the only game. This is, once again, this is about risk and what kind of risk you're willing to take in order to win. And basically what the Patriots did is they said, look, we're going to stack the box, number one. We're going to blitz guys, number two. And we're going to make Blake Bortles beat us, number three. Mm-hmm. And what the Jaguars did not reciprocate with was we're going to allow Blake Bortles to beat them. They decided we're going to let anybody but Blake Bortles control this team in the second half. And I think that's, that's ultimately what happened to the offense. Mm-hmm. Matt? Yeah, I guess I, I think one of the things that happened was the field position really switched on them where they had a lot of drives starting to set their own 20-yard line. And, you know, Hack and Marone kind of made a decision that, they weren't going to let Blake Bortles have any turnovers at all, especially not turnovers that close to their own end zone, too. That would just, you know, hand the Patriots points away that you couldn't do that. And so if they had those, those drives started that close, that was when they just really just said, oh, we're going to hand the ball to Fournette on these power runs. And they got out of it, you know, a few times, but the Patriots kept getting back to the 40-yard line and kept putting them back there. The, the second thing I, I feel like kind of happened is I think the Patriots kind of – you know, shot their wad. I mean, the Jaguars shot their wad, and they ran out of plays to run. Like, all those cool screen passes, all those quick passes out to the flat. I don't think they have very many of them really left at all. And so they didn't want to go back out with the same play, have the defense, you know, read that play immediately, and then go back and attack and squash it out. And so they just kind of went back and just ran some, you know, they ran a lot more West Coast offense stuff. And the last thing I saw, too, was, Bortles wasn't you know, really running play action at all anymore. He wasn't getting out of the pocket at all. He was just dropping back out of the shotgun on third and eight and those sorts of things and throwing, you know, having to throw complete passes to him around first down. And you know, that's not what you want him doing as well, too. And so it was just kind of a, a weird you know, accumulation. And you know, I felt like they were coming off the gas, and then I went back and watched it again. And I didn't get that same feeling, but I feel like they just didn't have anything else that they really knew what to do. They were just kind of – they expelled all they could those 20 points is all they could get and they just hoped that their best pass defensive football would hold Brady and it didn't work out yeah I remember writing our, our listserv that they just gone away from the slant they quit throwing slant they quit doing the things that made the Jacksonville Jaguars successful offensively instead of it, and it was just like okay here's Fournette up the middle oh god you guys stopped it what do we do next so mm-hmm. I just I to me felt like they went into um prevent offense just really, really early this game. And we say they probably, like, shot the wide in the first half. You're, you're probably right. I mean, you know, they, they had them so off balance, and then all of a sudden everybody started playing discipline, and then they forced everybody through the line of scrimmage and said, hey, Blake Bortles, you're going to beat us. And I think if, if Hackett and Maroney would have given Bortles half the chance, I think they would have had a better chance to win this game because who did not think – out there in radio land, in, in podcast land, who did not think that Tom Brady was going to win that game at the end of it? Yeah. Yeah. And I remember whenever they kicked that punt and at their own, you know, goal line, even before they had goal, I was watching it with my grandparents. And I said, they're going to score a touchdown right here, and there's nothing stopping from happening. And then, of course, Amendola had 20-yard return brought to the third, and they scored immediately after that, and that was the game. 
But also, you know, going back to Bortles, he made some really good throws. That one to Westbrook on the sideline on that game-winning drive was beautiful. That other one to Alan Hearns on the right sideline was beautiful, too. That back score throw. Like, he was making some throws to the sideline. He had no pressure at all to deal with. He was able to throw to fast receivers. Like, Butler's been terrible this year. Stephon Gilmore's the most overpaid cornerback in football. Like, they were able – he was able to attack those throws out wide. And I think what the Patriots did defensively was they really clogged the middle of the field. Fournette only had 24 yards and 10 carries. Uh, Malcolm Brown was awesome in this game, the Patriots' nose tackle. Mm-hmm. And then and then they also switched from playing zone to man as well, too. And uh, they were – yeah, they switched from playing more zone to more man and to kind of stop those you know, screen passes so they would always have somebody over there uh, to kind of deal with those blocks, too. And, you know, it, they just – and, again, they didn't run those screen passes as well. So, I think there's, like – 10 different reasons why the Jaguars only scored six points, and none of them are because of Blake Bortles, and that's a really weird sentence to say. Fantasy, I, I would say that it, it was because Blake Bortles is who Blake Bortles is, that there was just no trust so the history in Blake Bortles. Of it. Yeah, the, yeah. Well, obviously it's the history of it, but like in real time, like directly, like all, I guess all that indirect stuff is why is the root cause why, but like directly, like Bortles wasn't I guess the reason why they only scored six points in that second half in a lot of ways. Yeah. Uh, so uh, Bortles what, in this game. Yeah, go ahead. I, I want to talk about one thing. I really want to stress that because I, what I saw, though, offensively from the Patriots, because I didn't see that as a lead-in, um, was that uh, – because I, I did want to talk about that a little bit – is the offensive play-calling scheme, and not only that, the play design in the second half by the Patriots to me was absolutely ingenious – there was one play in the uh, second half. It was the second-to-last touchdown drive. It was a, it was both a rub, a levels, and a flood on the same play. It was a beautiful call to get an easy. I think it was like a 12-yard, 10, 12-yard gain on, uh, gain on first down. They were doing everything. They were running lots of meshes, lots of rubs, lots of levels, lots of flood. They were doing every little thing in order to create separation for the wide receivers. Tom Brady was hitting wide open wide receivers against a, a good passing defense for a reason. And it was just, the game plan was gorgeous. I mean, it was just like, this is how you call a game plan in the modern NFL. This is your master class of how to do that. Cause you can't stop it. Mm-hmm. I yeah. And I, I think what really what was happening on, you know, the Patriots passing was they were able to distinguish between you know, zone and man coverage so easily. Exactly. And they saw zone, they ran those flooding routes, and they just ran, you know, three crossing routes in the same part of the zone, and they made, you know, just read from the middle of the linebacker, saw where he went, then made their throw off that. And then when they went man, then they went back to all these rubs and meshes and were able to create openings uh, there as well, too, because the Jaguars have the best pass defense in football. And like you're saying, you know, they, had, they didn't have Gronkowski even, and they were able to get, you know, wide-open receivers over and over again. The, the weirdest thing I saw was how – off, they were playing Ramsey and Boye on the sideline, and Boye doesn't have the closing speed that Ramsey has. You know, his is good, but it's not like it's not spectacular at all. And they were just handing yards away to Brandon Cooks on just those deep comebacks over and over again that they could always have. Um, what did you see there? Were they playing cover three, or were they just playing off man? Didn't want to have Boye get get beat by Cooks, or have Ramsey get beat by Cooks deep? I, it almost seemed to be quite a bit of uh, combination coverages because. It, it seemed like Boye had, and I could be wrong. I could be completely wrong because I didn't go rewatch it. But it seemed like Boye had one job: don't let Cooks beat you. 
Yeah, and that meant playing, playing five. Yeah, yeah, they played five to seven yards deep. I mean, it was like the old Romeo Cornell defense, right? Don't get beat deep. Don't give up the big play. And that seemed to be Bouye's number one job at Cooks. Not necessarily a bad thing, right, with Brandon Cooks, one of the fastest guys in the league who can actually catch. But uh, it, the, the problem is, is it was just like what happened against us um, during the regular season with the Patriots is we were playing so far off it allowed them to beat us underneath. And instead of getting one 80-yard play, they just hit us for 15 yards, 17 yards, 20 yards. And eventually it took some four plays to score. So that's what it just kind of seemed like to me on uh, mm-hmm. on Sunday. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. And I don't even know how much it was cover three, but just it was a lot of off-man coverage. They didn't have they wanted to have their safeties up in the box, playing the center of the field to stop the quick passes and cover Gronkowski. And they left the the sidelines just in one versus one coverage. And I know Boya was frustrated after the game, you know, in his interview, where he's saying, you know, I don't know why we didn't play aggressive at all in the receivers out there and that sort of thing. And you know, I think I think he was right because. You know, he's a you know they're him and Ramsey are the best cornerback combination of football, and I think if he's inside Cooks' space, you know he's physical enough to deal with him. Uh, that 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 both of them kind of got beat deep on pass interference penalties. The Ramsey one was a penalty completely. Ronan Boy really wasn't because he forced him out of bounds, and whenever that happens, the play's kind of dead, and the ball is thrown you five yards inbounds, and they called him on an uncatchable you know DPI that was, I thought was a bad call, but. Yeah, the whole thing was just kind of weird. Uh, the the Thomas Cooks really got open downfield, though, is forcing the slog against linebackers, and the Patriots really didn't go to that as much as I think they could have as well. Yeah, once Miles Jack went down, that was the, that was ball game right there. Yeah, do you like Miles Jack as a football player? I love Miles Jack. I think he's just now figuring out how to be a linebacker. I think he's he's going to become. I think he's going to become a dominant player at the position. Absolutely love the dude, Matt. I really like watching him play. I don't like how much of a headhunter he is. Like he's always he's one of those guys who hits people late. He's constantly hitting people in the head, diving at their head and that sort of stuff. But other than that, I think he's just like I think he has more technique, more cleaning up to do this game. But at a minimum, like he's a spectacular playmaker. Like he had that interception in the inside the Steelers twenty five yard line last week where he stole that pass away from the running back. And then he had that huge force fumble in this game. And, yeah, minimum, he's like a, a really fast, raw guy who makes plays. And I do think he'd be one of the best four, three outside linebackers in football once he gets better against the run and better better improves his coverage skills too. Yeah, I haven't noticed the head hunting thing. So, thanks for the heads up on that. Yeah, he does it a good amount. I, and hopefully he kind of you know, gets beaten out a little bit. We'll see. Uh, the other weird thing I, I thought about the Jaguars defense too was Calais Campbell, Malik Jackson, didn't get really a pass rush at all in the interior. Marcel Darius had a better game rushing pass from both of them. Uh, so what was going on with there? Was it just kind of what happens when you rush in the interior where you're going to get double teamed, uh, you know, at least every other play? Uh, why, why'd you, why did they have such down games in this one? Well, they weren't even getting double teamed. They were just getting stonewalled all game. And I think that was the most shocking thing to me is that Tom Brady got hit early and often, but – not as early and not as often as he should have. And I think it came down to that exactly. I think it came down to um, the Patriots offensive line really won that battle in the trenches. Yeah, I think so too. I do think at least, you know, just the way pass protection schemes go, that Campbell and you know, Jackson are going to get double teamed on every other player or whatever, just because you slide your protection that way. 
and your guard and tackle are going to block one, your guard and center are going to block one. But even when you have one versus one, like I thought Campbell against uh, Joe Thune and David Andrews would be you know, incredible mismatches, and they both held up really well. I thought the same thing with Malik Jackson, those two guys, they held up well. Fowler had a really great sack against Cameron Fleming where he you know, bent the corner real fast and ripped under. But and then Ngakwe was completely you know, stopped, completely neutralized, Stop, neutralized totally. by uh, Nate Solder. And Solder had a really good game. And like, I mean, I don't know. Like, they just it just wasn't there this game, and it was weird too because like going into, I thought the blueprints would beat them. That what Jacksonville could do was similar to what Denver did two years ago, where they would rush the passer with their front four. This time, the passers should come from the interior. They can play press man coverage because they have the the secondary to do so. And then if Gronk beats them downfield occasionally. That's fine. You can't cover them every time. And then Jaguars almost beat the Patriots in an entirely different way, like a way of their own. And uh, it was mainly just from like having a really smart offensive game planning game plan than just coming down and tackling really well and man coverage until you know, the Patriots kind of broke free in that second half. Yeah. And I, if you look at what the Jaguars kind of scheme was, is you get in and Fowler on the outside and force it up into the middle where you have Darius and, and you have Jackson and Campbell there, uh, not necessarily all at once, but where you have those three guys there. That's where they were getting a lot of sacks. That's why Clay Campbell was so successful. You get Ngakwe off the edge. He scares the quarterback inside. You get the interior sack. That didn't happen this game at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's a good point, too, because I do think they're – now that you mentioned that, it kind of clicked for me that the Jaguars' pass rush, you know, it wasn't – you don't see, like, a lot of, like, really great individual rushes, but you see a lot of, like, an overall kind of swarm around the quarterback where one guy beats, you know, the inside that forces him to scramble that takes him in Ngakwe, who – you know, strip sacks, some of those sorts of things. And uh, and that really wasn't happening in this game at all. Like, all four guys. Uh, you know, Darius had a really great really great sack where he just bulldozed Shaq Mason. Shaq Mason, that was spectacular. Fowler had a really great pre- uh, pass rush move. But other than that, there really wasn't a whole lot going on, you know. Yeah, it's it's like, you know, animals that, that hunt in groups. That's what they've been mm-hmm. like all year, and it wasn't there this year. And, Yeah. Okay. It reminds me of the, of the, the African hunting dogs and that Moss Mouse song. That's about a, a wild pack of, of family dogs, a, a wild pack of dogs, like, picking up his sister and running away with her. I've never understood that song at all. All right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so Tom Brady is the greatest quarterback of all time, and I think he was especially great in this game just because even the passes that weren't completed, like, he put them right there. Uh, that you know, deep pass to Brandon Cooks that Cooks dropped. The D, he had that deep uh, deep pass to Gronkowski that he dropped because he got completely you know obliterated. Like he was putting the ball everywhere, all over the field in this game. Uh, what was your favorite Brady throw that he made here? It was a a third down pass, and I can't remember who it was to. Uh, it was a, a a late crossing pattern. I think it was Amendola, and it was a first down. It was like a third and ten or eleven or something like that. And it was just such an on-the-money ball. Like, one person is going to catch that ball. One person is going to be close to that ball throw. And it was um, in the third quarter. God, I wish I would would have looked it up because I saw the script, but I didn't have a chance. But um, it was just such a perfect throw. It was like the ultimate Tom Brady throw. And it was – he read the coverage correctly, like like you said. I mean, Brady was reading uh, man versus uh, zone all game perfectly. And it was 
just the perfect book. That was that was mine, and I realized that was so extremely detailed. And I hope everybody's blown away <laughs> by those details. <laughs> mine, mine was, mine's just because I'm a brat and I don't like things that I like uh, really specifically. And mine was that wheel route he threw to Amendola, that oh, fourth yeah. and one conversion they had, only because it's that same uh, that same route concept that teams have just been using all postseason. We have two inside routes. One of them kind of picks who's ever covering. So like the farthest inside receiver is running a wheel route. The second receiver is, running, is picking that guy. And the third one's running a slant. And every time that guy's open, and so he threw that really beautiful, like, lofting pass and wheel route, like, right over Telmonson's head to complete that fourth and one. And that was my favorite throw he made. And, he, again, like, it wasn't necessarily any greater than all the others, but it was just that same route that's just everywhere. And, I'm kind of like Jim Carrey in the number 23. Like I'm just seeing it, you know, around the spots in nature. I'm seeing it at work. I'm, I'm seeing it when the ants, you know, walk on the floor. Uh, I can't, I've been seeing that stupid pass concept, you know, for the past four weeks and I've been losing my mind over it. <laughs> yeah, the other one is that busted flea flicker over Miles Jack was a perfect yeah. pass too. I mean, the guy, the guy was, that one was really great. He, he was throwing some nice balls on Sunday. What can you say? Yeah, I like the Bortles busted flea flicker because there's nobody open. He just kind of ran to the right, had two guys about to you know, destroy him, and he dumped it off to O'Shaughnessy, and he picked him the first down. Right, right. So yeah, there were three flea flickers that game. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, there were three. three. There were three. And then there was one in the Eagles game as well, too. We need more flea flickers in football. It makes it a better game. <laughs> he says there's no innovation in the NFL. Yeah, that was a big thing when I was a kid in the seventies. Just saying. <laughs> well, your time is a circle. Uh, the <laughs> last thing I have for this game is that the Jaguars lost to the Patriots twenty-four twenty. They beat the Steelers by you know two touchdowns, pretty much. I know they had that late game garbage touchdown that didn't matter. The Chiefs looked to get rid of Alex Smith. Their entire defense is in disarray. So, are the Jaguars now like the AFC team to compete with the? Patriots, and do you think they actually have the, the gumption ability to prevent the Patriots from making it to the Super Bowl next year and also moving forward? Or is it so I'm going to bring in Texan Army's question on the block, too, in this one. Yeah. Is, this is all about Blake Bortles at this point in time. Either you as an organization have faith in Blake Bortles or you don't. And Sunday told me the answer to that is, no, we do not have faith that this is a guy who can win us football games. So if, if you're the Jaguars, you, to me, you, your first pick, you have to be going for a quarterback this year in the draft or somebody who can play for you. Drew Brees, maybe? I don't know. But this is the year to go out and get you a quarterback because you have a mighty big window right now. I think um, that there's a lot of talent on this team, and if you do not have faith in, in Bortles to win you a game in the fourth quarter, then that's what you need to address. So to, to kind of answer that question in a sideways view, if, if they believe – if they give Bortles an extension, they're the dog that just throws itself on his back and says, I'm done. If they go out and are aggressive with that quarterback position, then I think you're going to see that they're going to be a team to deal with. So I really think that – this, the answer to this entire question is, what do they do about quarterback, Matt? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the, the problem with Bortles is, like, you can win with him, but you can't win because of him. And it's that same kind of you know, game manager conundrum that you're in. 
And you have to do so much. Like, so much right has to happen to win games with Bortles, you know. You have to make sure he doesn't turn the ball over. You have to you know, run these screen and quick passes. You have to, you know, hope for Nets having a great game and this and that. But I think that's what makes the Jaguars so interesting this offseason is that there's a ton of quarterbacks available. You, you don't, I don't expect Ty God Taylor to be in Buffalo anymore. Alex Smith is going to be available for a trade. The Vikings have three quarterbacks that are going to be free agents this year. You know, Drew Brees is a free agent. I think I want to say it. I'm pretty sure Brees is going to stay in New Orleans. Uh, you assume that Phil Brewers is going to stay in you know, L.A. as well, too, since that move happened. If they were going to trade for him last year, been the year to do it. But there is going to be like seven free agent quarterbacks or so available, and also other guys open for trades as well, too. So the whole thing is going to be really interesting to see. And then Kirk Cousins is going to be available also, potentially. So there's a lot, a lot of options there for Jacksonville. Yep, agreed. And if, if if they make a move for – see, I don't think Alex Smith is the answer. If they go for Kirk Cousins, look out. That's the best team in the NFL. I think – yeah, I think even like Taylor would be good too because they can run that run scheme around him. And they would just need him to make like, you know, four so four passes down fielders to not turn the ball over and do what he's been doing as well. And you could probably get him for, you know, a third-round pick or whatever instead of getting Kirk Cousins, you know, $27 million a year. Right. Which and they, they don't have the cap space to do. Yeah, and they are, yeah, they sell their cap space and then they're have to re sign, you know, Ramsey and their younger players in the next you know, two or three years or so as well. So I don't know if cousins will be in play, but uh you know, everybody else it's there's a lot of options for the Jaguars. They're excited moving forward and hopefully like I'm just happy that it's not just the Steelers and the Patriots because the Chiefs are done. And so at least there's like another team that can actually you know, compete in this division rather than just poop their pants in the division around like the Chiefs had done the last three years and you know, would have done again this year. Can you imagine what's going to happen to the Patriots once Tom Brady is gone? I mean, they're going to go from this extended series of Super Bowl competitive play to, like, being one of the worst teams. In the they should never win a game again. I say fold that <laughs> franchise when he leaves. Good. I'm so sick of them. I never want to watch another Texans game where they go up to New England ever again for the rest of my damn life. So I will. That's the worst game in football by far. And I'm still upset about last year, too, in that divisional round. All right, well, now now let's stop being mad again. Let's talk about this Eagles-Vikings game. Uh, So the Eagles won 34-7, and the Vikings lost for a wide variety of reasons. So which one is the most surprising to you? Case Keenum, the Vikings' third down defense, the Vikings' pass rush, the Vikings' inability to control the line of scrimmage, the Vikings' tackling struggles, or the Vikings' safety play. Which one is the most surprising, I guess, reason why the Vikings lost in this game? It's kind of wrapped up in this, but and I'm taking away one of your bullet points, and I apologize, but yeah. Nick Foles. It, it, Nick Foles is, is my answer to that, because who the heck knew that Nick Foles, and I'm quoting your stats, so all credit to Big Matt, Four for seven, 172 yards and two touchdowns, pushing the ball down the field on deep throws. What the heck is that about? Is that the safety play? Is that not being able to get to him? The answer is yes. So, but I, you, you have to give credit to to uh, Nick Foles for even just doing that. So I'm going to say Nick Foles. Matt. Yeah, that's a that's a good answer, and I I don't know. Yeah. I guess the, the strangest one to me is the third down defense because this year the Vikings 
stop. They forced a punt on third down 25.8% of the time. That's the all-time highest mark ever for a third down defense. Their de- defensive DVA on third and fourth down was negative negative 43.4%. And in this game, the Eagles turned a third down to a first down 71.4% of the time. And, like, I know third down defense varies year to year, and it's kind of a, a fickle thing that can – it kind of change. you kind of rapid because you don't face that many third downs. And uh, you have so many things kind of have to go right to get a longer third downs and, and also the length of the third down you're facing and all that. But 71.4% of the time is insane, especially for, you know, this defense that the Vikings had. And that was the most surprising, you know, one to me in this game. Uh, so what did you see on third down from the Eagles? Why were they able to, you know, attack and, and turn so many of these third downs and first downs? I, I think just giving Nick Foles the ability to throw the ball. I mean, I, I that I, it just seems so simple. And I admit I didn't watch the last quarter because, well, the game was a blowout and I was tired and getting sick. So I, I think sort of that's what it came down to me is that it, they just – Nick Foles had time. They were able to keep him upright – the offensive line for the Eagles played outstanding. Yeah, I don't know. It's not that much deeper than that for me. Well, I guess, like, the reason why is kind of everything that I mentioned before. So, I think it's one full it's a lot of time. And the really kind of, like, disappointing matchup that the Vikings didn't win was that Everson Griffin versus a Vitae yeah. matchup where, you know, he has to beat Vitae nearly every third down pass for a situation he has. And he didn't. Vitae stayed with him. He stopped his bull rush. I thought Griffin could really use that spin move against him. He didn't as well either, and that was disappointing. And also, the the Vikings just did not tackle very well at all in this game. They constantly, you know, held on to ankles, and they fell forward for first downs. They would miss tackles on the edge after a juke, and they'd run for first downs. And so even when they got there and made the right play and were in position to end it, they just missed tackles. And it's not like the Eagles have good skill players, but – you know, Corey Clement shouldn't be being Harrison Smith on third and six for a first down. Uh, you know, I can understand Ajayi, but LeGarrette Blunt shouldn't be running through Michael, through Anthony Barr for a first down, those sorts of things. And I think that's really what killed them as well, was just that inability to, to wrap, wrap up and make those tackles that they've been making all year. Yeah, and the big one, you mentioned the really big one that, that stood out to me is Everson Griffin was hurt. He was not 100% he, Oh, he was game. hurt? I, he was hurt. If I remember correctly, he was hurt. I think he sat out the week before. I, I'll ma- make sure I'm he, correct. He played against the Saints. Ah, well, maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, he played against the Saints. He had that one big sack in that one. Okay. Maybe but I'm he wrong. Said he, had a, he said he had a foot injury, and it's still improving, and he's sitting out the Pro Bowl. And uh, so he wasn't his 100% best, but, yeah, that's a shame, though. Yeah, because – yeah, his numbers in the second half dropped off precipitously. I mean, after he got hurt, he had, it looks like, roughly 10 sacks through the first eight games and three the rest of the season. Yeah, I guess he had that foot injury that was bothering him. But, yeah, I, mean, I was really expecting him to just have a really big game that one. And, you know, the other one, too, is Harrison Smith was awful. He was missing tackles. He wasn't able to go from the center of the field to the sideline to make plays. Uh, you know, you mentioned Nick Foles, and we can talk about him now. But those deep throws numbers, like one was that flea flicker at Torrey Smith, where he put the ball right over here, right over Trey Wayne, who was chasing, put it on Smith's outside shoulder, and then Harrison Smith wasn't able to come over. And also, like Zach Ertz chewed up Harrison Smith on four of his catches as well. And the guy just didn't have a good game, and that was really surprising because he, you know, whenever he's at his best, he's like a Hall of Fame level type of talent. 
Yeah, I agreed on that, and I don't have anything to add because well said. It's just it's weird, you know. Like there's so many things about this Vikings game that was just really strange, just how they how they played. Yeah, and then Case Keenum. Yeah, and so let's talk about Case Keenum. He had three turnovers. Uh, the biggest one was that pick six on the inerrant pass, and and I know Chris Long hit his arm or whatever, but he that was that throw. Like you know, you talked about with you know Schaub and you know even Keenum before, where you would just say you know he had these passes that just are either going to get picked off and they haven't, and that one was. Like, he threw into zone coverage with two receivers there. He doesn't have the arm strength to make that throw. He should have gone down or, you know, stepped forward or done something else with the ball, and he didn't. The second was he was strip-sacked in the red zone that really started this entire dismantling because they were down 14-7. They were going to get at least three points there, and so he strip-sacked. The Eagles come down, they kick a field goal, and that's a six-point swing. And then whenever they get the ball back, the Eagles are able – no, the Eagles came down and scored a touchdown – and then they were able to force the Vikings to punt, and then they scored right before them in the half. And all of a sudden, it was 24-7. The game was kind of over after that. But they pulled their six-round pick out UTSA. He's not a good blocker. And they're a really difficult position, too. And he got beat by Derek Barnett and was strip-sacked. And that kind of started that entire thing. And then he also threw an interception late game as well that didn't really matter. So, BFD, were you happy to see the team that you know and love come back? Are you more settled in this reality that we're living in? Has your anxiety gone away? <laughs> I don't I don't need to get shot in Florida from this at all. I really don't. But, dude, 28 for 48 for 271 yards. I mean, that's just that, – that's five and a half yards per pass. I mean, that's really Keenum regressing to what he is. And he really survived this year on his he, – he, he thrives on two things, the ability to throw the ball down the field and his anticipation. And both of those things were taken away on Sunday. And that's what you wind up with. You You cannot – you cannot have everything coming down with eyes on it. You cannot be so anticipatory that the linebacker whom you're supposed to be throwing over is almost tipping the pass to the wide receiver 10 yards down the field. And that was one of the plays early on in the game. It was a reception to Adam Thielen that I noticed that uh, – I can't remember the linebacker almost got it. But a little bit faster linebacker picks that ball off. So it's, it's the sort of thing where you can only do that. That's only a dog that hunts so far. And if you're going to go out and give Case Keenum a big contract, you're making a huge mistake. Yeah. I, yeah, I mean, I think the numbers are going to be off just because they were down big and all he could do is just throw over and over again against, you know, kind of prevent defense. And you're not going to be able to do a whole lot there. But, yeah, I mean, he, he, those turnovers is what killed him. And, I mean, I think he was – the Vikings were like just this perfect kind of death machine <clears throat> where their offense works and the way they set these – you know, these high, you know, lofting touch throws he could throw to, are you there? to Diggs and Thiel. Yeah, are you, am I, can you hear me? Oh, crud. Damn it. Can you hear me? Hello, can you hear me? We're back. I'm back. All right, can you hear me all right? Yeah. Man, okay, cool. block talk radio has been horrible. Yeah, it's been very – I'm going to send an email tonight. But, uh, yeah, and I think, like, just, like I was saying, I think the offense and the entire team has fit together so perfectly to win games with Keenum once, you know, Bradford was injured, and they're able to really take advantage of isolating Thielen and Diggs and man coverage, let them throw those high lofting touch passes that he's really good at. And I think the whole thing worked together really well. But in this game, with the way the rest of their team played, they they had to have Keenum win this game for them. He had to, you know, transcend the offense, play better than the rest of his team did, outplay the Eagles defense, 
And he's not good enough for that. He's not up for it. That's not something he can do. And uh, it just wasn't the, the position for them to be able to do to win this game. And so, I don't know. That, I mean, that's, I still think he can be a, a starting quarterback in this league if things are – like being above average starting quarterback in this league if he's in a situation like he was in this year. But who knows how it's going to happen? Who knows who's, who's going to pay him? Who knows where he wants to go to and what the Vikings are going to do as well? Uh, but I think it's it's really I think the the most interesting question this offseason is the Vikings quarterback situation. Truly, and Case Keenum's thirty years old this uh, you know for twenty eighteen, and so yeah. that's that's one that's another thing. He's now he's past the age thirty, so a lot of questions. That's that one's going to be the big one. Do they go with Teddy Bridgewater? Do they go with Sam Bradford? Do they resign Case Keenum? From what it looks like, the Vikings aren't at all interested in Case Keenum. And if you're the Vikings and you're not at all interested in Case Keenum and you're another team, like, say, the Cardinals that really needs a quarterback, are you going to say, whoa, whoa, the Vikings don't want Keenum and just saw him play all year? Let me think about that. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I, I know quarterbacks, like their age curve, they peak at 31 is their peak. Um and like running backs, it's like 27. Wide receivers, I think it's 29, and that sort of thing. I think pass rushers are like 28, and so, and so I I don't know. Like I I don't I think he could still keep this level play. I don't think he's going to drop off immediately. And if he does, he's able to keep some sort of level play to me because of his intelligence and stuff. Like how Peyton Manning survived with this weak arm because his team's arm is going to keep getting worse in like you know two or three years. But yeah. Right, so let's play a fun game. Let's play the, the Vikings quarterback carousel. So I'm gonna let's go through each three of these quarterbacks and I'm gonna hear where you think they're gonna go. So Sam Bradford, where do you think he's gonna be the quarterback at next year? This is not a fun game, Matt. I'm just saying this is not a fun game. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that I really wanna play. Oh my gosh. Uh, Sam Bradford, where does he I don't know where Sam Bradford winds up because I think everybody knows what he is and he's basically a 20th level quarterback, right? You put the right offense around him. I mean, look, Sam Bradford was also successful in Pat Shermer's scheme. So it, that's what's crazy about this whole thing is is you had Sam Bradford was was successful and Case Keenum was successful. So that's pretty crazy. Um, I, somebody's got to wind up in Arizona. Like, period. Um. I eventually think – I really think it's going to be Case Keenum. I don't know where Bradford winds up. Um, I think they re-signed Bridgewater just because of his age, and they're going to – Bridgewater's going to give him a deal to stay there, and they're going to give him a chance to win the job. And I don't know how that's going to turn out. That's my guess right now. Not- yeah, I think Bradford re-signs in Minnesota, and then they draft a quarterback, like a rookie quarterback to back up there. I think Bridgewater stays up because Bridgewater wants to start for sure. So I think he's going to go somewhere else, which makes me so excited. Like, I, I can't wait to – hopefully we get to see Bridgewater start somewhere next year. And I do want to say this. Everybody says, oh, you know, Bridgewater's bad. You know, the Texans are smart for not drafting him. The guy had a disastrous leg injury, almost lost his leg. You know, that and that wasn't even like something where, oh, his legs are skinny, like that whole sort of narrative game. That was a, a freak injury that you can't predict. And uh, it was just an awful situation. And his career is far from over. This is the same guy that almost beat the Seahawks in a playoff game, or beat the Seahawks in a playoff game, and then Blair Walsh missed a kick. So uh, I'm not. I do think he's still good. There's a chance for him to be a, a good quarterback in this league. I don't know where he's going to go though. And then you have Case Keenum, and he needs to go to a dome team for sure. I think Arizona is the best spot for him to go. I don't know 
if they'll go there, but I think this is the best, most likely spot, though, especially when you have a new head coach who's going to be pressure combling games right away. Right, and, and Steve Wilkes is that head coach now. I think he was signed with today or yesterday, so mm-hmm. that's the man in Arizona now. And he's also a defensive guy, too, and he's going to want to just say, hey, tell the offense, just go ahead and get this guy and make it work. You know, I'll take care of all this on my end. But what I saw, he's bringing over the Eagles, uh, God, DeFilippo? I think it's who it is. is he, he's, bringing over, he's bringing over an offensive mind from the Eagles, so that'll help. Yeah. To run the offense. Yeah. So but that's my best bet. What do you, so if Bridgewater doesn't go to Minnesota, what do you think is a good spot for him to go to? I think he needs to go to a WCO type situation. I think the Browns would be a good matchup for him, to be honest. Yeah, they dropped like a first round pick and then just let him sit yeah. behind him. I really hope not. That made me so sad to see Bridgewater in Cleveland. Well, I'm like tearing up right now thinking about it. <laughs> you know, another good matchup would be the Bengals. Yeah, but they're not getting rid of Dalton. The Jets need a they're quarterback, not- but they they play outdoors. You know, you don't want to have Bridgewater playing outdoors like that. So I don't know. No, it all no makes idea. me very sad though. All right, so let's go back to Nick Foles real fast. So like you mentioned earlier on deep passes, he was four for seven for 172 and two 172 yards and two touchdowns. Earlier this year, he was 4 for 17, 82 yards, one interception. Back in 2013, 9.2 yards in attempt, 23 touchdowns, two interceptions, a touchdown rate of 8.7% before he regressed to the mean. So, Nick Foles, can he repeat this performance next week? So, shakes magic eight ball. All signs <laughs> point to no, Big Matt. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I don't, I don't think so either. But like, I like the. It's not gonna, it's not gonna be a a bad matchup for him next week. He's gonna have plenty of time to throw. He has a great offensive line that's gonna be able to handle your New England's front. Alshon Jeffrey and Torrey Smith can both get open. Zach Ertz can open against these linebackers. Like, I think it's the uh, situation for him to have a great game. But I just, I don't, I don't know. And like, he made, he made like five spectacular throws last week outside, you know. So I, I don't know. I'm not expecting it to happen because that was just some miraculous game that he had. But it's not improbable. Like the opportunity is there for him to seize it. Okay. <laughs> that's that's a crazy stat line. Four for seven for one seventy. That's crazy. That's insane. That's like madness. Right, right. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think he like. What I mean is, I guess I don't think he can put up deep numbers like that. But I guess, do you think he'd be a confident quarterback next week? Like, do you think he'd be good enough to beat the Patriots? Yeah, I think he can be good enough to beat the Patriots. Yes. Okay. Because the Patriots are they they are pretty awful, and the difference between ultimately look at this, we just read seven yard deep throws. I'm sorry, by Nick Foles. Do you think? The Jaguars allowed Bortles to do that, like, on purpose. So that's the big difference is the the Eagles are going to be willing to let Nick Foles throw the ball down the field, whereas they weren't willing – the Jaguars weren't willing to let Bortles do the same thing. Yeah, for sure. Uh, And my opinion on the coach of the year thing has fully changed. I said Sean McVay, hands down. But I think Doug Pearson should be head coach of the year. What he's done, like, to create, like, touchdown throws for Wentz, what he's done with Foles these last two weeks – and then also, like, I think 
I think it takes four weeks for a quarterback to figure out his offense or a team to you know to the new quarterback or even like the, it's like how September football doesn't really matter. Now that Foles has played you know six games or five games now, I think he can actually like he understands this offense. They know what they can do with him, what they can't do with them. And so I think like Wentz got injured at the latest possible time for the Eagles having any success. But overall, I think Pearson just has just done a fantastic job. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I have to agree. All right, so my, my last question for you about this game is, so let's remove the quarterback position. Which team do you think has the most talented roster in football if you just don't think about quarterback at all? I thought this was a great question. And the only two teams I could really look to and, and come to – or three, three are the L.A. Rams or whatever they are this week, the Chattanooga Rams or National Rams, whatever they are. The um, – Glitter Kitties, and the Eagles. And I would throw the Vikings in there as well, too. Yeah, I could buy that. Yeah. Yeah, I would say it'd be those four teams, though. It, I, I, it's just such a weird – like, I still can't believe we have a Super Bowl that we have here. Uh, so, anyways, <laughs> the, the line – the line is Eagles at plus five and a half. Are you leaning any way yet? Do you think the Patriots are – we're going to do our preview next week, but do you think the Patriots are going to win? Do you think the Eagles are, are, are going to win? What do you think so far? I have not made up my mind yet on this game. I'm, I'm happy that I have an extra week to do it. I'm not excited about the five and a half point spread. Um, the, the Patriots are the Patriots, but the Eagles are a difficult matchup for them in a lot of ways. So I'm not excited about that spread. Um, I, I, I haven't decided yet. I'm going to have to think about this one, Matt. Yeah, I, right now I like the Eagles with the, you know, based off the spread just because I think it's going to be a close game. But uh, as far as where it goes, you know, I don't know. Like I, like I think the Eagles can kind of do what the Giants did to the Patriots to be on the years before where you know, they get pressure their front four, uh, they run the ball well, and then they just need – their quarterback to just pull a horseshoe out of his butt, you know, three times to, to make things happen from there. Yeah, and the big difference to me is the Patriots defense is just really truly awful. I mean, there's no yeah. there's no slicing it any other way. And the Eagles offensive line is going to create a lot of problems from that aspect alone. That is mm-hmm. such a great offensive line. Lane Johnson, Brandon Brooks, Brandon Brooks. Where do I know that name from? Anyway. Uh, they're going to create problems for the for the Patriots, and they're going to keep Nick Foles clean all game. And the Patriots yeah. can bring all the blitzes they want, but Blount and Ajayi can both block the blitz as well. So now, now, that's a Ajayi really tough matchup. Ajayi tackles too. Yeah, yeah. It's funny kind of looking at their rushing stats because Ajayi is averaging like 5.3 yards a carry, Clement's averaging 3.7, Blount's averaging 3.8. Like there's such a big difference in talent between him and those other two guys. Yeah, talk about – wow. I mean, that was a trade. They had in season to get that guy, too, for like a nothing mm-hmm. burger. Yeah, and I, I think that's like the, the market inefficiency in football right now, that the, 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 the – uh, God, I'm so stupid – that the Eagles found is just making trades because they made three big trades this year that, you know, really to build their roster up. And I think that's – we're going to see more trading, you know, this offseason as a result of what they did with their team. I like that. Good thought. Yeah, so we didn't really have any questions all night. Texian Army had one that BFD answered. So I got uh, a question for you. 
Have you enjoyed the postseason so far, and has it made you happy to be a football fan? Yes, I think this has been a fun off season in a lot of different ways, and I could talk probably another hour about why it's been so fun. But um, it, I'm not mostly because I'm tired. But um, this is, you know, this is the best time of year as a football fan. Obviously, this is an opening day when everybody thinks the Texans are going to go 14 and two, and why is the matchup so <laughs> negative? But this has been a really fun. Uh, I'm sorry, not off season, postseason. And I've enjoyed it thoroughly. Thank you, Blake Bortles, for the thrills. Thank you, Miles Jack, for the strip sack, uh, for the you know, forced fumbles. Uh, bite me, Tom Brady, for winning another game. Yeah, I'm done. Yeah. Uh, I've, I really have enjoyed it as well, too. And I liked the Titans, you know, come back. I, I really enjoyed that, you know, Falcons, Eagles, Bucks fest. Man, it seems, all of this seems just so far, so long ago, you know. The Vikings and uh, Minnesota Miracle was just spectacular stuff, too. That Saints-Cam Newton, quote, the Drew Brees-Cam Newton deal was, you know, awesome, awesome. But we've, had, we've been very lucky. We've had, like, six really good games this year. And, you know, usually we only get, like, you know, maybe one or two and they've been kind of lame in previous years. And hopefully the Super Bowl is, you know, really good. And, uh, yeah, I'm excited for it. Yeah, it, it's not the matchup I wanted. Would have loved to have seen the Glitter Kitties with Carson Wentz, the quarterback for the Eagles. But, hey, I'll watch it. You know I will. Yeah. So, anyways, that's all we have for tonight. Thank you for listening live, listening live. And thank you for sticking around through the little bit of difficulties we had. Sometimes it works with the, the service that we have. Uh, but thank you for being on tonight, BFD. And if you are listening to the show right now, uh, give us a five-star review and tell your friends and family about it. Our plans for next week is we'll do a Super Bowl preview. We'll review the Super Bowl and do a Texans Awards show to kind of wrap up the season that week. And then we'll be done for a while. I'll try to get diehard Chris on for an episode. We'll talk about movies too and kind of his thoughts on the season because we only heard from him once this year. So that's the plan for the next uh, you know two or three weeks or so. So anyway, thank you for listening live. I'm listening to record everybody. Thank you for being on tonight, BFD. And we'll talk to you next Tuesday live at 7 p.m. Central. Uh, my name is Matt Weston. Thank you for listening to Bell Run Radio. Woo! Damn it! There we go. <laughs> <laughs>
And I want to tell you about my new show, It Seems Smart. It Seems Smart is a show about people doing things that, for some reason or another, seem smart at the time. Those things might include doing a little cocaine and driving a bike up a mountain. Or, I don't know, maybe racing 100 miles per hour across the country in the middle of the night with no one's permission. Or even stealing a bat from an umpire's room in a Major League Baseball park. Check it out, and if you like it, tell a friend. I'm Spencer Hall. Don't do anything smart. Smart.